0: Welcome to the Website Coach Podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs and small business owners that want a winning website, one that attracts more visitors and helps them book more clients. I'm Marie Brown, a website designer and business strategist, and I'll be sharing simple and actionable tips to help you create a winning website. So let's get started. Hello, and welcome to episode number 100 of the Website Coach Podcast. And you can probably hear in my voice that I am very excited to be recording this. And it's because it feels like a huge milestone. Well, it is a huge milestone. And I firmly believe that we should celebrate reaching milestones, celebrate our successes before we continue to move on. And 100 episodes of this podcast really does feel like a huge achievement. When I started this project a couple of years ago now, I didn't know where it was going to go. And I started it with the intention of podcasting every single week and keeping going with it. I didn't podcast with the intention of just trying it for a few weeks and seeing how it went. I intended to make it a long-term project because I didn't think it would be successful unless I was consistent with the episodes. But I I must admit getting to 100 episodes really it doesn't seem like 2 years ago since I started it and it feels like such a huge achievement. And I want to say a massive thank you to everybody who listens and if this is your first episode that you've heard, then welcome. And if you've listened to a number over the past two years, then thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting me. And thank you for spreading the word. Because I'm recording this at the beginning of August, and July was the best month that I've had to date for podcast downloads. And that surprised me slightly, because in July, people are on holiday, and people's patterns are slightly different. But it just exceeded the previous record, which had been in January. So it's really good to hear that the podcast is being supported more and more. And certainly the feedback I get from people who tell me they listen to the podcast is incredibly positive. So a massive thank you to everybody. Now, I said I would do something slightly different for episode 100. It, It didn't feel right to do the same as what I do for all of the other episodes. So I handed the mic over to you in many ways. And a couple of weeks ago, I asked for you to submit any questions that you might want me to answer on this episode. And if you follow me on Instagram or you're on my email list, I also asked there. So I've had a number of questions and I'm going to group them into topics to answer them. Thank you to those that that did submit questions. There's certainly some interesting ones and some challenging ones, and I'm just going to do my best to answer them. So let's get started. The first question I want to answer is from Phoebe. And Phoebe's asked, what made you take the leap and start your podcast? And was episode one the hardest to do? Well, what made me start? I was looking for a way to grow my audience, as they say. And I knew there were a number of different ways of doing that. So I had a very good audience. I still have a very good audience. It was small but mighty. Um, There were quite a lot of my existing clients in my audience. And there were also other people that I knew, and I felt that it was really full of the right people. But it was small, and what I wanted to do was to grow that audience. So, when I talk about audience, I mean people who know me and follow me, you know, me in a business sense. And a podcast was one option. YouTube channel was also mentioned as another option. And the thought of doing YouTube channel, to be honest, horrified me because. Like a lot of women, I'm quite self-conscious about the way I look, and I knew I would find it hard to turn up on a regular basis unless I'd, you know, done my hair and I was looking presentable, basically. Whereas with a podcast, you know, I've done podcast episodes in my pyjamas. I've done podcast episodes with my hair all over the place. I'm not exactly looking my smartest today, I must admit. And it just felt a much easier thing to do to turn up and to talk into a microphone. And also from a technical point of view, actually from a technical point of view, I'm not sure I really saw much difference. I think I thought a podcast would be harder than it's actually been from a technical point of view. So they were the two things that I looked at and podcast was definitely higher up the list than a YouTube channel. I've talked about this on a on a previous episode, I can't remember the number of it, number 40 something I think, I talked about the lessons that I'd learned from a year of podcasting. And I think it was going to be more of a silver bullet than it has been. And like a lot of things, you have to do the promotion yourself. So I thought that people like Apple and Spotify would push my podcast more. And they don't. Yes, I've been in charts, but they don't push my podcast at all. I have to do that. So I've had to promote my own podcast. And I think that's the thing that I probably didn't realize. And I think if I'd realized it was going to be as difficult as it has been over the last two years, I'm not sure I would have started, to be honest. I think I would have used that time and that energy to potentially do other things. So I have thoroughly enjoyed doing it. I will say that. (laughs) I don't regret it. I I think it's been harder work than I expected it to be. And it hasn't been for the return that I necessarily expected. I think I thought it would be just a lot easier to reach more people than it has been. But in saying that, certainly my reach has expanded and it's interesting that sometimes when I go to networking events and I introduce myself, somebody will say, oh, I listen to your podcast. And that's really lovely to hear that it is reaching new people. So it's definitely reaching new people, just perhaps not quite as many as I thought it would do. So the second part of that question was, was episode one the hardest to do? No, I don't think it was actually. The first few episodes were really easy in many ways. My voice is probably a little shakier and not quite as confident as it has become. But in terms of the topics, I chose topics which I knew a lot about and I had strong views on for the first few episodes and therefore they were fairly easy to write. So I outline all of my solo podcast episodes. I haven't actually outlined this one, but when I say outline, I basically write a blog post which is sort of scripted for the podcast. So when I went into episode number one, it was pretty scripted. I just wanted to make sure that I sounded like I wasn't reading. That was my real worry. But I was very confident in what I was talking about. I think the hardest ones to do, but when you start to not run out of ideas, I've always got loads of ideas for the podcast, but you have an idea for an episode and you start to think about what you're going to say and you realize that's only five minutes. <laughs> And I like my episodes to be around 20 minutes, um, 15 minutes at the shortest, but usually around 20 minutes. And I know that that's about a 2,000-word blog post. So that's quite a lot to say. And sometimes the episodes I find the hardest are when I have struggled to make it long enough. And I have put episodes out that have been slightly shorter. You probably find one or two that are 12 or 13 minutes, but there's definitely no five-minute episodes in there annoys me when I listen to other people's podcasts and they really, really short. And because I'm on a dog walk or something and I've got to keep, I've got to move on to the next one. So I like episodes which are about 20 minutes and that's what's driven it. So they've been the hardest ones to do. Those when I've struggled to expand my topic for 20 minutes. And often that means that I've ended up starting again with something with a different topic. And there are times when, like everybody, I struggle to think about what to say and I'm just not feeling creative. I'm not feeling in the zone. And often that's when I have left the podcast episodes to be a bit too late and I'm feeling under pressure to actually go out there with an episode. So they've been the hardest ones to do. The second question is from Paula and Paula says, I would love to know a little about what you have learned through any of your design processes with your clients this past year so far. And then she's asked a second question, how challenges that you've come up against have helped you to further your already extensive skill set? Now, I built Paula's website this year, so I don't know whether she's referring to her own. But I think before I answer the question, it's useful to step back. I think people misunderstand the design process. When I design a website, I take a lot of information from clients. I want to understand their own style and what they like and what they don't like. I'll ask them a number of questions in a questionnaire. I send them to do that. And I also do things like look at their Instagram, because usually with Instagram, people have got a style. Sometimes they don't, sometimes it's very all over the place, but you can get a sense of their kind of vibe, if you like, through them. So their style is hugely important because if I try and impose a very different style on them, they're not going to like that. So I try and understand what it is that they like. The second key element of any website design is understanding their clients and their clients' processes in working with them. So what do clients need to know? Who those clients are? And an example of how that influences a design is, I've just put a website live for a podiatrist. And although she's keen to move to a slightly younger personnel, a lot of her clients are older. And so the website needs to have larger font. It needs to have a very clear navigation. It needs to be really more so than other websites I build. I was trying to use clear navigation. But it it needs to have a very clear navigation so people can follow it. It's also things like the older generation prefer using phones to booking things online. So I make sure I'm showing both. So people don't feel that they can't get in contact. And also the physical address and how you get there and those kind of things are obviously massively important. So that's how my clients' clients influence a design process. So what have I learned from my clients? All of my clients inspire me. They're all very different. Uh, They're in a number of different industries, albeit all in the service-based industries. I think one of the things that I've learned probably more than anything this year is how people really need guidance. When I started out building websites, I used to say to people, just give me your content and I'll build it. And people get very overwhelmed with that. So one of the things which I'm really trying to focus on when I take a break this month is getting my own processes in order. I really do things for clients to help guide them through the process. Now I have a questionnaire, I have a guide to a homepage and those kind of things, but I want to do even more and just give my clients so much more guidance in terms of the content that they need to come up with and, and give them a lot of prompts so that it's an awful lot easier for them, because that's the one thing that I have learned, not just this year, but over the last couple of years is I need to make things as easy as possible for my clients. Because, you know, they don't build a website every day. (laughs) Often they've built their own. Their first one has been one that they've built themselves. But they need a lot of guidance. So that's the key thing that I've really learned. And challenges. I'm always coming up against challenges. I think when I started, I thought website designers knew everything. All website designers knew everything. I've realized that that's not true at all. I don't think any website designer knows everything. So there's no reason for me to know everything. I know quite a lot. And so I'm often coming up against design challenges, things that I want to do and which I don't know how to do. And there are a couple of things which I do in that case. One is good old Google. It's amazing what you can find on Google, especially on YouTube, as long as you know the right questions to ask and who to trust. So Google is really good. Um, I'm in a couple of design groups, so asking questions in there. That has been really, really good. One of those in particular. So shout out to Josh Hall's group. That has been really helpful. And the third thing is, I have a couple of people who I pay and who I can rely upon when there are things which it's not that I couldn't do, but I just know that it's not worth my time and effort to do. So sometimes very technical things, which yes, I could learn how to do, but why do that when I can pay somebody else who can do it in tenths of the time that it would take me to work it out and they've done this many times before and it's likely to be accurate so I've got a developer in particular that I trust and so I will often outsource things which are outside my skill set to him. Next question is from Lisa and Lisa has asked how do you collect client feedback? I love this question Lisa because it shows that you're focused on collecting client feedback which is a brilliant thing to do why is it so good well there's two reasons one is for your own internal process how can you improve what you do how can you improve your products and your services and getting client feedback and understanding what clients want is key to doing that is to always improve and that's something that I'm always looking to do and I'll come on to how in a moment the second reason it's so good is to help you with your marketing I don't just mean quoting client reviews or testimonials, although that is incredibly powerful, but also you can, when clients leave feedback, you can pick up on some of the language that they use and some of the things that they're thinking about and use that in your marketing. So you can, you know, if a client says that they, you know, before they came to see you, they were particularly worried about a certain thing, then you can reflect that back in your marketing and you can overcome some of those concerns which other people might have. So how do I collect it? I ask. (laughs) When I finish a a bespoke website for a client, I have a questionnaire, which I send to clients. And it's not particularly long. There's about five or six questions in there. So I ask things like um, what they were worried about before they started working with me, why they chose me, how they found the process, any particular highlights. I ask them for a a review. And... Also, give links so that they can put that review onto Google, for example, which is something I, I, I want from clients. I want reviews on Google because that helps me to be found on Google. And I also ask for feedback on what I could do better. So I send that to clients. Do clients fill it in? Sometimes, <laughs> not always. I usually follow up once or twice and then I just let it go. So, and I get more forms back then I get Google reviews so I think I've got 19 reviews on Google at the moment desperately trying to get that over 20 so if you have worked with me and you'd like to leave me a Google review please do so just type in beyond the kitchen table and instead of going to my website it should be on the right hand bar on on Google and you can leave a review on there but at the end of the day you can only ask so many times and so when I ask clients I do point out that it's really really helpful and but people are busy so you can just ask and that's what i encourage everybody to do is ask for the reviews people are busy and don't want to give a review they won't but you'd be surprised i get reviews back from people that i didn't expect to get reviews back and that's really good and really helpful for my business next question is from ella and ella has said i'd love to know more about how to get a domain name there's so many companies offering them i don't know where to start and I've heard you should purchase a few similar ones to stop others from having them. When it comes to buying a domain name, so this is your website address, it doesn't really matter where you buy it from. As long as it's somebody reputable, so 123reg, GoDaddy, Google, etc. it doesn't really matter. I used to recommend people buy from Google because then it was easier if you wanted to use Google's email service, Google Workspace, it was easier to connect the two. Google's actually sold its workspace to Squarespace, and I don't know whether they've sold the domain service with it as well, so I'm not sure. I haven't been advising that over the last month, but it doesn't matter where you buy it from. In terms of what you should buy, if you have the opportunity to buy the .com and the .co.uk, you should definitely buy both, because they're the two key ones that people use in the UK. .co.uk tends to be used more by people who have a UK-focused business and .com by people who are internationally focused. But both are very acceptable in the UK and they are the main two. And by buying two, what you can do is you can have one of them as your main domain and then you redirect the other one to that. Should you buy more than that? Well, it depends. And it might be worth buying an additional one or two. But the reality is there are so many different extensions. So you've got .co, .org, .info. Dot .design, all sorts of different things, that it's just not cost-effective to buy all of the different extensions. You've also got hyphenated versions and things like that. So it's very difficult to mop up all of the different domain names, but certainly .com and .co.uk. Beyond that, I would probably go for registering your your trademark, your brand, as a way to protect your name from generally being used by others, rather than trying to buy up all of the domain names. Rajashree, I hope i pronounced your name correctly there, has asked what changes to do on a website so that it comes first in search. This is a question I get asked a lot. Or it's an assumption that people have that when I build a website, they will automatically come first in search. And my question back is, what do you want to come first in search for? Because everybody wants to get to the top of page one of Google, but... Getting there with your business name is one thing, but do you want to get found for other things as well? So getting found for your business name is not that difficult, but getting found for other things, it depends upon how competitive those terms are. So if you want to get found for, I don't know, boys running shoes, just don't bother because you'll have the Nikes and the Adidas and people like that will just have that that sewn up and you're never going to be able to have the funds to be able to compete with them. And even if you did, I'm not sure it'd be worth the money, to be honest. So the first thing is to think about what you actually want to get found in search for. These are called your keywords and the best keywords are ones which people who are looking for a service like you are searching for, that is relevant to your business, and that you can compete on. Once you know what those words are, then the next thing is to make sure that you're writing about that keyword or phrase. And you should make sure that on every page of your website, you are only trying to target one keyword. If you try and rank for lots of different keywords on a page, Google would be confused and it won't consider your page um, for ranking on any of them, or at least not very high up, it really likes to understand what a page is about and then it will look to rank it for that and that's basically the the main thing you should do there are a number of episodes on seo and i'll do some more i've got some more coming up in september and in fact i've got a course coming up later this year as well when i can go into much more of that but it's understanding what your keywords are that you want to rank for and writing about them are the two main things that you should be doing okay claire has asked what is the next thing We have websites, Google, social media. What will the next way of marketing be for businesses? It's a really interesting question, Claire. And I wish I had a crystal ball. (laughs) I don't know, but these are my thoughts. And I have two key thoughts. One is the impact of AI, which is obviously going to get bigger. AI has made it much easier for people to do content marketing or is making it easier for people to do content marketing. And I think we're going to see an explosion in content marketing there's going to be a lot more competition because it's much easier and yes when it's easier for you you think great but it's also easier for your competitors so you've got to find different ways of standing out i think the impact of ai on search engines like google is going to be fascinating and i think a lot of the more generic search where people are looking just for information and where websites might at one time have come up they're going to be replaced by AI results. So people are not going to be directed to your website if they want to know how to do something, for example, or why you should do something. But I think when it comes to searching for things like Plumber in Seven Oaks, it doesn't really matter whether it's a search engine giving the result or whether it's AI. Search engines are just AI anyway, they're just ranking Plumbers in Seven Oaks, and AI might do it slightly differently. But at the end of the day, You've got to be feeding it the information so that it knows if you're a plumber in Subnoaks that you should be included in that list and preferably higher up. But the other change I think we're going to see in marketing is, and I've noticed this much more post-COVID, is people want to do business with people. And I have seen a shift back to in-person events and people craving meetings with individual people. Yes, we might use Zoom and we might use computers for a lot of things and save time that way. But I think we're also wanting that human interaction. So I think marketing is going to go back to being much more about your connections, much more about the people you know and who they know. And that's going to have a massive impact going forward as well. There we go. That's my crystal ball. (laughs) Let's see. Let's listen to this back in five years time and see whether I was right or not. Okay, two more questions. So Sarah has asked how I managed to balance work with my family life. And when I started this business back six years ago, my children were 13 and 10. So they went little, little, but my daily life revolved around taking them to school, coming home, doing some work, and then some afternoons I would be needed for school things like sports matches, for example. I was always very keen to see my children play sport as much as I possibly could and support them, school pick up, and then in the evenings it would be taking them to clubs, swimming, those kind of things, being around for homework, cooking dinner. So that time from about 3.30 till 8pm, I, I couldn't do any work and sometimes I'd work in the evening. So my work time had to be focused really the time they were at school. School holidays, always challenging because although they didn't need complete supervision, they always wanted to be doing things. One of them used to be quite happy having a lot of play dates, which was really helpful for getting work done. The other one wanted to be out and about more or play on electronic devices. So I found various different strategies of, yes, I might take them to soft play and I would take some work that I could do in soft play. I might swap with other families for play dates. Always important to try and do those with both children (laughs) going at the same time. Otherwise you just end up with one child and that doesn't really help in terms of getting work done. But it was just a case of fitting into you know where they were and the time that I had. And as my children have got older, I have got more time because they're more independent. My eldest is at university. And yes, that means that when I go and take him and bring him back at the beginning and end of term, it's a couple of days out. But when he's home, he's pretty independent. And my other is 16, so she is, again relatively independent, although I'm needed for lifts. And sometimes it might be, can we go shopping in Blue Water or something like that? So during the holidays, I try and be more flexible. I can't always be around for them with what they need, especially when they usually ask me last minute, (laughs) like, can you take me now to something? And I've got a client meeting in 15 minutes. No, I can't. (laughs) You'll have to wait, which doesn't always go down well. But it, it is a case of I think sometimes just accepting you have less time. You don't have 35, 40 hours a week. Or if you do, some of it's got to be during the day. Some of it's got to be in the evening. The other thing I often have done is work on weekends. And especially when my children were younger, getting my husband to take them out on a day at the weekend out of the house, which meant that I could get stuff done while they were out. The one other challenge I have now is now that we, the last few years, we've got a dog. So I have to fit in dog walking. So I still do the school run in the morning and then I walk the dog. So I don't start work until about 10 o'clock and I try and have the first hour free of any meetings. So I try not to take client calls until 11 o'clock in order to just make sure that I don't feel that I'm behind before I've even started the day properly. And the final question is from Georgina. Georgina's asked, what's the most memorable thing that you've either woken up in the night thinking about or has been your first waking thought? And I've left the trickiest one to last. (laughs) talk about procrastination I don't know is a very straightforward answer I think like a lot of women and maybe men I have often woken up in the middle of the night thinking about something I've woken up in the middle of the night it was a spark of inspiration for a client's website that might be design or more often and certainly this has happened very frequently is something I've been thinking about well how do I do that and the answer will suddenly come to me at 3am not the most helpful time. But that happens, and that's life. So my brain is often whirring at night. First waking thought is never very inspirational. I'm not a morning person. It's more likely to be, uh, what time is it? (laughs) I really don't uh, have an awful lot of brain power at very first thing. But certainly in the middle of the night, I often wake up. But I can't think of anything particularly memorable. So sorry, Georgina. That's not really a very good place to end, is it, on the, the question that I can't answer? but it's not bad. One question I can't answer. Hopefully you found the other answers useful. This is not something I've done before. Maybe I'll do it again in the future. Let me know if, you've, if you enjoyed this episode as being something different. I'm on email at sayhello at beyondthekitchentable.co.uk or on Instagram at beyondthekt. You can message me on there. So that's it for this week. Episode number 101 next week. Thank you so much for your support. Have a great week. See you next week.